0: Which brings us to the final section of the book, 56 to 66, where the servants inherit God's kingdom. These chapters are beautifully designed as a symmetry that brings together all of the themes of the book. At the very center are three beautiful poems that describe how the spirit-empowered servant is announcing the good news of God's kingdom to the poor. And he reaffirms all of the promises of hope from earlier in the book the new Jerusalem inhabited by God's servants will be the place from which God's justice and mercy and blessing flow out to all the nations of the world. And surrounding these poems are two long prayers of repentance where the servants confess Israel's sin and they grieve over all of the evil they see in the world around them. And so they ask God to forgive them and that his kingdom would come here on earth as it is in heaven. Now on each side of these prayers are collections of more poems that contrast the destiny of the servant with that of the wicked who persecute them. God says he's going to bring his justice on all who pollute his good world with their evil and selfishness and idolatry and that he's going to remove them from his city forever. But the servants, those who are humble before God and who repent and own their evil, they are forgiven and they will inherit the new Jerusalem which we discover is an image for an entirely renewed creation where death and suffering are gone forever. And this brings us to the very outer frame of this part of the book. In this renewed world of God's kingdom, people from all nations are invited to come and join the servants of God's covenant family so that everyone can know their creator and redeemer. And so the book of Isaiah ends with the very grand vision of the fulfillment of all of God's covenant promises. Through the suffering servant king, God creates a covenant family of all nations who are awaiting the hope of God's justice in bringing a renewed creation, where God's kingdom finally comes here on earth as it is in heaven. And that's the very powerful hope of the book of Isaiah.
1: Would you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out Your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them Yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them Yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for You. Father, we love You. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> I'm actually going to start off by, by reading a, a part of the book that I did not send in ahead of time to be put on the slides. Kat loves it when I do this. It's great. Um, she's just thrilled when I don't have anything on the slides for uh, So this is from Isaiah 6, and the reason why I'm going all the way back to the beginning of the book after preaching on it for three weeks is that I think this passage, uh, it, it, it sets up some of the background that helps you understand everything else that's going on in Isaiah, but that also helps make it really clearly relevant for us in our day. So I'm going to read this. This is just the the beginning verses of Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the angels flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips." Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. This is Isaiah's call story, right? Within, within the Bible, this is like the biblical equivalent of when Spider-Man gets bit by the radioactive spider, right? This is what sets him off on his mission. Don't you love when I can make that kind of reference? It's just so great. It's a great story. This is what sends Isaiah to do. It's kind of oddly placed because it's not in the very beginning of the book. Like, he's already started prophesying And then he says, oh, by the way, this is why I'm doing it all. And it opens with what seems like this little throwaway historical footnote. Yeah, this happened in the year King Uzziah died. Okay, great, let's get on with the real business of what we're talking about. But the thing is that 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 date, that year, is really significant. It tells us a lot about what's going on. Because King Uzziah sat on the throne for 52 years. For 52 years, he was the king of Israel. And he was a good king. And there weren't all that many of those after David and Solomon. He was actually a good king. His reign was 52 years of peace and prosperity and stability. Now, this is an absolute monarchy. He is the government. When he dies, the government dies with him. So for 52 years... The people of Judah have had peace, prosperity, and stability. He has, by and large, kept the people faithful to their covenant with God. He's done a good job. And he dies. And the next several kings in a row are not going to be so good. None of them will reign as long as he did. The people of Judah are entering into a time of incredible instability and uncertainty and danger. Which is, of course, largely what the book of Isaiah is warning about, right? He spends the rest of the book giving all these warnings about it. Look, if you keep going down this path, it's going to end really badly. And calling them back, and of course it doesn't really work. But this is the context in which he begins his mystery. The people reading his book, most of them will not remember anything before King Uzziah. They would have been born while that man was on the throne and their entire lives were lived while he was on the throne. Given the life expectancy of that time, there's a good chance that for his readers, their parents lived their entire lives during King Uzziah's reign. This is uncharted territory for them. They're terrified, and rightly so. Their world is falling apart. Their government is literally gone. It's going to be replaced with something new. No one knows what the next king is going to do or what he's going to be like. But he has absolute power. And in the midst of all of this fear and uncertainty, that is when Isaiah is called to go and carry the word of the Lord to the people. My friends, it's no secret that we are um, entering into a, a difficult season as a church. We've, we've started this discernment process. We're sorting out our future. For the next six months, we'll be talking and praying over uh, our future as a congregation, and if we're going to stay in the United Methodist Church or not, it's going to be difficult. I believe it has never been more important for us to have a, a deep, deep transformational faith in our God. But it is really easy, actually, for us to make our faith a shallow thing. Now, I'm speaking to myself as much as I am to any of you, so please don't hear this as like a finger-pointing sermon, right? This is for me, too. It is easy to have shallow faith because shallow faith, it's comfortable. Shallow faith is comfortable. It doesn't challenge us. It doesn't make any demands of us. Shallow faith lets us put on the appearance of being religious without having to actually submit ourselves to God. And that is not the life that God wants for us. God wants us to be transformed radically by his power and by his presence. There's supposed to be actually clear evidence in our lives of our faith. I mean, this is... This is what the Gospels are all about, the transformational presence of Jesus. This is what John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, was all about. All his sermons are about how the the power and the love and the presence of God is supposed to transform you forever, to change you from within, to renew you, to restore you. Our faith in God should transform us completely from the inside out. So I'm going to be reading just from the last few chapters of the book of Isaiah. I'm going to start in Isaiah 58. And it's going to be the whole chapter, so just buckle up. It's a lot, a lot of scripture. It's okay. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions, and they seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please, and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loosen the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear and your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See, there are are people who take a lot of pleasure in knowing God's word, but they fail to actually live it out. And their religion becomes hollow. And, And outwardly, they're faithful, worshiping and praying and studying the scriptures, but inwardly, they're no different from everyone else. There's no transformation. And sometimes these might be people who we would call self-righteous, right? They enjoy the appearance of holiness. And on the inside, of course, there's nothing there. But they like to look like they are the right kind of person. And other times they might just be people who feel comforted by the rituals of faith. Plenty of us who have grown up in churches all our lives find great comfort in church services and in prayer and in reading the scriptures. But we don't take the next step so we enjoy the comfort of familiar songs and the comfort of hearing the scriptures read and the comfort of a church environment, but we don't take the next step. There is no inner transformation and our faith remains hollow and shallow. But God requires a faith that is lived out in every aspect of our lives. A faith that affects literally every part of what you do. A love that compels us to act and to show God's compassion and mercy to everyone around us. There is a, a, a problem when we believe that it is enough to just say that we believe in Jesus and, and repent of our sins and then carry on as normal. Plenty of people do that. Plenty of churches teach that that's all you need to do, right? Pray the super special sinner's prayer and then you're saved and you can do whatever you want. But you're not going to find anywhere in the Bible that says that's okay. You're going to find very much the opposite. You're going to find all throughout the Bible, all throughout the New Testament, that, that, that God requires more. God, God wants transformation. There is, there is a reason why the, the Apostle James tells people, faith without works is dead. What he's saying is, you can tell me you're faithful all you want, but until I see some evidence of it in the way you live your life, I'm not going to believe you. And neither will Jesus. There's a reason why he says in that same letter that, yeah, it's great that you believe in God. The demons believe also, and they tremble in fear. So, what are you doing to actually show that you have faith in this God you claim to worship? Because it is not enough to merely believe. This is not not just a New Testament thing. God is telling his people all throughout the Old Testament the same thing. It's one of the major themes of this whole book. Of Isaiah is that the people of Israel have adopted this this empty meaningless faith and they go to the temple and they offer their sacrifices and they pay their tithe and 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 then they don't do anything with it there's nothing their hearts aren't in it and after they go to the temple in Jerusalem they might very well go to a pagan temple down the road to hedge their bets a little bit All throughout all of the Old Testament prophets, God is saying the same thing over and over again. And He's saying, I don't care about your sacrifices. I don't care what you offer in the temple. I don't care what you do on the Sabbath. If your heart's not in it, it does not matter. That is the Old Testament God. It's not just the rituals and the laws and the things that they have to do, it is what's in your heart. That's what God wants. Jesus tells us in the Gospels that the two greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And that, my friends, is not a New Testament thing. That is what God is saying to his people all throughout the Old Testament. First love God, then love your neighbor, and everything else will flow from that. All the other things God wants from you, begin when you love God and love your neighbor and if you aren't doing those two things nothing else you do will matter it will be empty rituals it will not please God because there will be no love in it and this is what Isaiah sees that what matters is actually loving God, actually loving our neighbor's actually living out our faith in a way that changes the world and that changes people. That all this other dry faith, all these rituals, they only have their meaning when they are done in love. They only have their meaning when the person doing them actually has genuine faith and trust in the God they are worshiping. And what he sees is that far too many people don't have that kind of faith in their God. They don't trust that the God they're offering sacrifices to in their temple is actually going to care for them and provide for them and watch over them. And they've put their trust in other things. And so they do what they're supposed to do on the Sabbath, and they do the rituals they're supposed to do, and they check off everything on the list of all the things that a good Jewish person is supposed to do. But in their hearts, there's nothing. And it leads him to this prayer in Isaiah 64. And it is a prayer. This is not Isaiah quoting God to the people. This is not God speaking to the people. This isn't Isaiah interpreting anything. This is a prayer Isaiah is praying in response to what he sees in the people around him. Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains would tremble before you as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. This is a heartfelt plea for God to come, to act in the world directly, for the barriers that separate heaven and earth to be removed, and for the glory of God to descend on the people. It's a plea for God to come and fix what's broken, for God to come and remove all evil from the world and make it so that everyone can see his beauty and his goodness. You notice it doesn't say, oh, God, would you please come down and smite all the unbelievers. No, God, would you come and show these people what they're missing out on. That's the prayer. Lord, let them see your glory so they know what it is they've turned their backs on. I wonder, have you ever wanted that? Have you ever looked at, at the headlines around us and seen all the, the despair and the evil and the suffering in the world and just had a moment where you really genuinely wished God, Jesus would just come back right now and end it all. Put the world to rights and fix all the problems and wipe the evil out of the world. Because i got to tell you that's exactly the, the sort of prayer that the love of God and the love of neighbor should lead us to from time to time. If you aren't having these moments when you look out and see all the suffering, all the oppression, all the injustice, all the sin in the world around us and, 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 and just wish for a moment that Jesus would come back right now and fix it and rid the world of all its evil and, and make things right, you have to wonder if you're, if you're loving deeply enough if you haven't had those moments. I have to wonder if I'm not Loving deeply enough if I'm not having those moments. Part of this prayer, part of this prayer is is for God to act in such a way that nobody would be able to deny Him any longer. It's not a longing for judgment, it's not a longing for vengeance, it is a longing for everyone to see the glory and the beauty and the goodness of the God of Israel. And For Isaiah, the the hollowness, the shallowness of the religion of the people of Israel is driving him to this deep despair over their faithlessness. And he knows what's coming. I mean, we've seen that throughout the whole book. He knows what's coming. And he wishes God would come down and intervene. to avert all the evil that's about to happen. I got to tell you, in a lot of ways, that's where I'm at. You know, our our church is at this crossroads. We voted last week to begin this this discernment process in which we're going to humbly approach God in prayer and seek out his wisdom for our path. And my friends, I don't know where that's going to take us. In six months' time, we may well vote to remain in the United Methodist Church. We might vote to leave and and join a different denomination. We we might vote to leave and and become an independent church. I don't know what will happen. But I know that people will be upset. I know actually that people are already upset. Some people are going to want to leave our church over this. No matter what happens, by the way. And I find myself praying this prayer from Isaiah 64 because there, there is just a part of me that wants God to come down from the heavens and wipe away all our problems. And yeah, part of that is because I know that there are some people who will, will leave our church if we don't vote the way they want us to vote. My friends, the thing is if we as a church spend the next six months praying about this, seeking out God's will and God's wisdom and God's guidance. We should all be able to agree in the end that any outcome is God's answer and accept it. Whether we like it or not, which is the hard part, isn't it? And I hope you recognize, by the way, that I'm including myself in that. Because just like any of you, I have my own thoughts and opinions here on what I hope happens. And, and it may not go the way I want it to go. And I'm still going to be your pastor at the end of it. And, and my hope is that's what happens. My, my hope is that, that we do this together as a church. We seek out God's will together as a church. And on the other side of it, we are faithful together as a church. That over the next six months, our faith will deepen that our, our prayers and our rituals and our worship will not be hollow and shallow and that the glory of the Lord will indeed shine down upon us. Because it's easy for us to adopt the form of religion with none of the power. It's easy. It's easy to take delight in knowing the scriptures and in following certain rituals and praying and to feel good about ourselves for being outwardly faithful even if we are inwardly no different from non-believers. It's easy. But Jesus was not concerned with outward faith. Never. He was concerned with with inward transformation. That's what he was all about. That's what his life was about. Transforming people. He didn't eat with sinners because he was trying to make a statement or stir up controversy. He ate with sinners because he wanted to see their lives transformed. To change them forever. Forever. He wanted his presence and his love to change them from the inside out. That's why he did that. And he wants transformation for us too. Our faith should be such that our lives are radically different because of it. Jesus Jesus spent his whole life befriending people and showing them love and calling them then to live differently in response to his love. And one of the biggest critiques that non-Christians will throw our way is that we Christians aren't anything like Jesus. And all too often they're right. Because too often we don't let ourselves be transformed by him. And sometimes I'll see Christians respond by saying something like, well, we can never truly be transformed in that way. We can never truly be like Jesus in this life. All that matters is that we believe in him and go to church, and then we'll be okay. But the thing is, the gospel never actually says that. If you pay attention when you read it, the Bible never says that. It says the opposite. It says, actually, faith should make you different. Everything we do should look different from anything a non-Christian would do. My friends, that means that, that as we consider the future of our church, this should not look anything like a, a secular political vote. It shouldn't look like a shareholder vote in a big corporation. It can't become about who's right and who's wrong. It can only be about what does God want and where is God leading us. If and when we vote, we won't be voting about what you want, we'll be voting about what God has revealed to us. The whole process of discernment is about seeking God's will, and that means we have to accept the outcome, and even if it might not be what we hope for, even if it might make us a bit nervous or make us a bit uncomfortable, and once again, my friends, I am including myself in that. I'm putting my money where my mouth is. I've committed to be your pastor regardless of what happens in six months' time, and I mean it. And I wonder, I wonder, can you do that? Can you accept that God's will may be different from yours? Can you continue to live in unity with your brothers and sisters who are sitting next to you right now, even if they vote differently? Now, I know you can do that when you know they voted for a different political candidate from you. Y'all are really good about that. But what about when they vote differently on the future of your church? Because that hits a lot closer to home. See, this is why I find myself turning to Isaiah 58 and 64, because I desperately want my faith to be transformative, and I want our church to be transformed by faith. I want for each and every one of you to have the kind of faith that that changes you from the inside out, because, my friends, we're going to need that kind of faith over the next six months. And I wish we didn't. I, I really do. I wish... I wish that we didn't need that. I wish that God would step in and intervene. And I wish there was a voice booming out of the clouds of heaven telling us exactly what to do so that there would be no question about it. There would be no need for us to worry about it. It would just be clear. But that's not how God works. See, God wants us to seek him out in prayer. Because it is an opportunity God to pour out the Spirit into us afresh. When we approach Him in prayer again and again and again and we're we're seeking His will together as a church in unity, that is a chance for the Holy Spirit to work. So I think that's what God wants. For us to humble ourselves and to pray. To seek out his will and set aside our own to to find a way to be unified even if some of us aren't so sure about the direction we're heading in even if even if we might lose a vote in six months because just because you're on the side that loses the vote doesn't mean you have to leave it doesn't mean that the bad people got their way and the good people didn't it will only mean in this case you might have misheard what God wanted. Maybe, maybe you weren't able to put aside your own wants and listen to the small, still voice of God. See, this is the kind of faith we have to have. Faith that trusts that, trust that God is in work in all of us within the church, even the people you don't like. That God is at work even in them that they too have the ability to to hear the voice of God speaking into their lives. Faith that all of us are seeking after God's will and God's truth. If we don't have that faith, we will be torn apart. But if we if we seek after God, if we all have that kind of faith that manifests in good works and transforms us from the inside out and that cries out to God to come down from the heavens and show his glory to us all, if we all have that kind of faith, then we're going to be okay. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.